，鬼岛之音 ，Ghost Island Media。Hey guys, it's Emily Waiwu here from Ghost Island Media. From all of us from Taipei, Happy Lunar New Year! As this is the Taiwan Tig, I know we've been away for a little while, but we've been cooking up some really cool projects here at Ghost Island Media.、Um, first of all, congrats to our Mandarin teams for two nominations this year at the KK Box Podcast Awards for Best New Show. Come this spring, we'll be unveiling two really exciting collaborations that we've been working on for a little while. Don't worry, JR will be back coming right after Lunar New Year. Now to keep you busy over the Lunar New Year festivities, I'm going to show you an episode from one of our former interns on the Taiwan Take. Her name's Alice, and you might have remember her name in the credits from the Taiwan Take and also in Metalhead Politics. In her episode for in training, she talked about accents as an Asian American. And if you like that episode, you can head over to In Training Xiao Gui Zheng Dao. It's a collection of episodes from our past interns. I really, really love the show, and I hope you do too. Happy New Year! We'll be back soon. Uh, hi. Welcome to McDonald's.、Um, may I take your?、Uh, may May I? Sorry. I mean, I mean, welcome. Welcome to McDonald's. What would you like to? What would you like to?、Oh, damn it! Wait. Hang on. I was 17, a crew member at a McDonald's in Southern California. Yep, the San Gabriel Valley. A 626, whatever. That's me. If you were born at Garfield Medical, you know. So why then did customers, especially the older white ones, ask where I was from? Yeah, okay, I know you know. But this one time, I was like, "Why do you ask?" It was this old white dude, and he straight up said, "Because of your accent." Oh, oh my God. God! I was mortified. I mean, I'm American, right? I don't sound like a you know. I don't sound fresh off. Well, I mean, I'm from here, and I still sound Asian. How? Can you hear it? Oh my God! Can I hear it? Hi, welcome. You hear that? That way, she said, "Welcome." Actually, I'm not really sure how she said it, but. I'm pretty sure it had a low back, open mid front, unrounded vowel. Well, I mean, well, that's one of the traits of what could be called Asian American English, not without dispute, of course. That Michael Newman and Angela Wu have identified in their 2011 article, "Do You Sound Asian When You Speak English: Racial Identification and Voice in Chinese and Korean Americans' English." But anyway, welcome to In Training. This is a podcast by interns at Ghost Island Media. Here we make episodes on anything we want to, and we do it from scratch, from brainstorming to recording to editing. This show—it's different, it's spontaneous, and it's kind of an experiment. There's something for everyone, and here it is. Here's how you know you've made it, as in like you've maxed out in English, you've Englished out. It's not grammar, not poetry, no fuck that. It's like this: you're speaking on the phone, so like. No one sees your Asian face, you know, and you sound like a white person. That McDonald's job got me hyper vigilant about this. According to Newman and Wu, speech markers of perceived Asianness 
include a breathier voice, longer voice onset times for unvoiced stops, and that low back, open midfront, unrounded vowel. If there's such a thing as Asian American English or even diasporic Asian English, more often than not, it's some variant of California English. Maybe people are just too used to Asians coming from California, right? Maybe that's it. So I was born and I grew up in Minnesota, mostly in St. Paul. And for most of school, I was like the only Asian or one of the only Asian people there. That's Catherine, fellow Asian American. Notice how she doesn't talk like me. I graduated high school and then I moved to the UK where there were also like no Asian people in the circles I was moving in. So I just picked up what was a very generically Southern English accent. So Catherine, we both do anthropology um, because we both have bad taste. <laughs> yeah. And you already have your PhD. You're younger than me. You have like half a dozen articles coming out. Congratulations, I hate you including one about people like us, working in a functionally white discipline. Um, I could ask you about your research, but, you know, I'm interested in style, not substance. Speaking of style, did you feel like you talked differently? Do you think there's, like, something lingeringly Asian about your voice? I mean, I was, like, the only one in elementary school. I guess if you're dispersed through all these majority white schools, then having an Asian accent was never a fear. I did not notice. Were you self-conscious about it? I was super self-conscious about it because the people at my high school were all, like, you know, Asian-American. Yeah. Like, they grew up um, in the United States, but they still sounded, they still sounded really Asian. I do remember a couple years ago, one of my friends from university, I was in England and he was like, oh, you have a sort of weird Chinese accent. And I was like, do I though? Like, do I? And I was, I was like, there is no way I have a Chinese accent. What do you talk about? He was like, I know, that's why it's so weird. And I was like, you're being racist. Stop it. Um, I really want to ask about this. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, so how do you identify generally? I think you kind of say broadly Chinese American. Yeah. And you're fine saying that. I'm fine saying that, but in general, I say I'm Taiwanese American is my default. But like your dad is from Hong Kong. Yeah. It doesn't seem like you identify as a Hong Konger of some kind. His parents were part of the Shanghai diaspora to Hong Kong. He speaks Cantonese and Shanghainese and Mandarin and obviously English. Both of my grandparents had died before I was born. So... He never taught us Cantonese. He never spoke Cantonese to us. And I've never been to Hong Kong. I spent every summer in Taiwan to go see my grandmother. Um, and the Chinese school that my parents sent me to was a Taiwanese Chinese school. What was that like? Do you remember your textbooks? Yeah, I remember my textbooks. And the horrifyingly ugly watercolor paintings that were in them. Right, and then the main character was called Wang Dazong. Yeah! Did you use the same one? Yeah, I think I used it. And then everybody would draw on them. You know, they're like watercolor. You can just make ugly faces. Yeah, yeah. 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 But no, I, I remember that Chinese school that used that book. It was at a church. Um, and it was somewhat middle-class kind of KMT kind of church. It was definitely a KMT place, yes. Because like, we had to memorize, like, That's book two, lesson one. Oh I, still, I still remember this. Um, <laughs> clearly, you went through the same system. Somehow this went over your head. It made no, no impression on me whatsoever. <laughs> wow. 
So like earlier, I was going on about the persistent taint of Asian-ness and the way I talk. I'm only second generation, so it's still there. Folk wisdom says it takes three generations to wash out. And we say we're both from working class families in the U.S., uh, but here in Taiwan, like the people who talk like us and who went to the schools we did are, are not working class. My dad was, uh, my dad is a plumber, but my grandparents were significantly wealthy, which is how, you know, they could have afforded to send themselves and their children to the United States in the first place. That's the same for me, too, when I look at my paternal side only, not my mom. But yeah, my dad fixed telephones and my mom was like a housewife. And then whatever, they got divorced. She came back to Taiwan. You know, I say we're very blue collar working class. I feel really uncomfortable about that. I'm not actually entirely sure whether anyone in Taiwan knows what my dad does for a living. Like, I'm not sure whether my mom hides it or not. I'm really not sure. For me, I think the obsession with English and sounding American perhaps has something to do with, like, I heard stories growing up, like, my paternal grandfather was the interpreter for Claire Cheneau, the uh, Flying Tigers guy, yeah, yeah. Um, American volunteer group. Uh -huh. It's like, English, it runs in my family, you know? <laughs> I need to be good at it, oh, and I need to sound I see. really convincing. <laughs> when did you learn English? I don't know, kindergarten? Did you speak English before you started school? I, like, honestly don't know. Because I, I didn't. The answer is maybe not, uh. which is terrifying. Because I remember having to test out of ESL. Oh. Part of it was, like, maybe racism as well. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Because we came at a time when all the white people were like, we have to leave. Yeah. So first, like, absolute first, very first language. I'm not going to include this in the podcast because it would tarnish my image as somebody who is amazing. At English. <laughs> I'm kidding. But um, uh, it may not have been my actual first. Because for me... I have memories of learning English. I don't remember ever having to do ESL, but like, I know for a fact my mother just dumped me in preschool, knowing I didn't speak a single word of English. Yeah, yeah. I remember the process, and it was traumatizing. <laughs> but I think like, especially if we look at our respective families' examples of immigration and how that affects our class status, mm -hmm. it's really an indicator of relative positioning, right, globally between say, Taiwan and the U.S. Yeah, 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 yeah. If we're talking about accents, the accent I have for the U.K. indicates a sort of very middle-class background. It's not a working-class background at all. If you've gone to Oxford or Cambridge, it guarantees you at least a middle-class status if you want it. I confess I am afraid to take a stance. Um, I'm afraid of the very word identity and of committing to a predetermined set of attributes and stakes, um, even if many of these commitments have, you know, they've already been chosen for us and you can hear it in how we talk. Um, if you understood to some extent Cantonese, do you think that you would identify a little bit more? Possibly, because I'm assuming that what would have happened in that case would have been also more contact with that side of the family. I was in Taiwan several months out of every year as a very small child. So I picked up Taiwanese as a kid. And I've never forgotten it. Would you say that um, part of how you choose to identify has a strong linguistic component? I guess. Like, I call myself Taiwanese American because I speak it. Possibly. I don't really speak it, speak it. 
I'm not very good at Taiwanese. I don't want to overstate this, but I used to be the one in charge of listening to my mother and my grandmother talk on the phone and eavesdropping on them for my dad and my brother. <laughs> I think a lot of it for me is cultural contact. Um, and a mother who was very specifically Taiwanese, I think, in the way she identified or the way she conveyed her identity to us. The main relative I spent a lot of time with when I was a kid was my grandmother. And her preferred language was, if left up to her, would have been Japanese. That's a different sort of issue, I think. But yeah, I would like to speak Taiwanese more than I currently do. So I did last year attempt to learn Taiwanese in a more systematic, serious way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like it costs money. I had to get the textbook, like really old Mary Knoll missionary stuff, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about like, are yeah. you a priest? Oh, bless. <laughs> Um, I got roasted for doing that. Why? My family thought it was like the most hilarious thing. <laughs> they thought it was like such a waste of money. Like during New Year's dinners or whatever, they would just be like, <laughs> Kaiji, you know, like, yeah, okay? And yeah. then they're like, It's true. Like there's so, yeah, anyway. Wow. But there's like a more sinister ideology behind it, though, I think. You know, like, first of all, in 2014, when I went to Beijing to learn like real proper Mandarin, you know, that was like quite pricey. Like no one questioned it. Yeah. But then try to learn Taiwanese. No, sure. And they would just be like, why would you pay money to yeah. do that? <laughs> There's the notion that like it's more natural. You just pick it up. It's not something you pay money for. <laughs> it's not something you learn. Like what you learn in school is Mandarin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and they kind of like resent me because they think I'm very spoiled. It's very awkward because they're like, I'm English dominant. But why is she still in school? Uh, she doesn't have a job. She's not married. She doesn't have kids. Like she has no sense of responsibility and she's 31. <laughs> um, so it's, it's very... Um, a lot of it was like, you know, I wanted to be able to communicate with older relatives, like Taiwanese dominant relatives, uh, okay, like, yeah. let's try to make this less awkward. Um, and all I did <laughs> was make it way more awkward. <laughs> There's like a mild shame in the terms of like, oh, just young people these days don't speak Taiwanese. <laughs> did you care about sounding Taiwanese? You know, when you're speaking Mandarin? I did not notice how much of a Taiwanese accent I had until I got to China. I'm very pig-headed about not assimilating too much. <laughs> oh, so you want you know to hang I mean? on to it. Now I want to hang on to it. Because before it was just how I talked. You know, I was just like, oh, I just sound like this. This is how everybody speaks. But like, would you feel less Taiwanese if you somehow didn't hang on to it? No, I'm, I just, I, I guess, I guess I would. I, but I also... Because I remember we've talked about it. Do they think you sound mainland? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, what are we? Are we just reaffirming exactly what we ought to be questioning and destabilizing? Of course, I'm never going to sound white enough or Taiwanese enough. And as a student of anthropology, you know, well, we both have been trained to look at this critically, but all the same, you know, like, we obviously still care about it. It still gets to us. And I'm still going to want to be elite. It doesn't matter if it's a construct. Like, I still want to sound like I belong, like I have roots somewhere, like I'm authentic. So I want to retain my accent in as much as that it's an identifier of who I am. Having a sort of Taiwanese or Taiwanese-ish accent is a reflection of my mother being Taiwanese, that I learned my Mandarin from her, that I 
you know, that I spent a lot of time in Taiwan as a kid, and that's where I picked up my Mandarin. Um, so it's important for me because I don't really want to lose that or cover it up. You know, yeah. I'm not ashamed of it, and I'm not making any effort to change it. But if it, when I'd be sort of sad if it disappeared completely. When I'm told that my accent sounds very ABC, I'm like, but what am I saying wrong? That's giving it away, because I don't really mind it in as much as that. I'm like, well, it's accurate. That is what I am. So like my accent in English is very much who I am, which is an American that spent ten years in the UK. I'm very hesitant to identify as Taiwanese within the context of people who are quote unquote actually Taiwanese. You know, so when you're asking about like whether I want my accent to stay Taiwanese, I do want it to stay Taiwanese, but not to the extent that I'm forcing it, because it feels almost appropriative to be forcing myself into an accent that I like. I don't want to overstate the amount of time I've spent in Taiwan. You know, I went there summers as a kid. If I were to get preachy about it, my take would be to kind of be more skeptical about the whole identity issue. When you grow up, you know, in a majority white environment, I think that engendered a very different relationship with being Asian. So for me, it's something I had to actively think about and actively process, rather than something. That was sort of in the air, so to speak. I don't mean this in a dismissive way. I think it's just genuinely we have different, very different experiences of what it means to be Asian American. That's really interesting because it sounds like for you the the challenge was accepting it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right. Whereas for me, it was like nothing about accepting. It was all about like differentiating myself, perhaps from the other Asians, because like that was sort of the context. Very different. Very different context where I grew up. Right, right, right. I remember like the first time I met like an Asian American from LA. I was talking to them,、mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh yes, the trauma." And she was like, "What trauma? What? <laughs> Everyone else was like me as a kid. What are you talking about?" I was like, "You didn't go through that trauma. There was so much trauma. That's why I left the U.S. because there was so much trauma." I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it was just you know the relentless everyday sort of grind of being like, "Oh, you're different. Why are you so weird?" I think yeah, I definitely take a lot for granted,、um, and I forget that like people with your experience, like it matters so much to them to have like this kind of identity and to have some kind of cultural core of some sort yeah, yeah, yeah. that you can like kind of really hang on to and work to preserve. Yeah. Whereas I think I'm in a place where、um, I think we should do away with all that. You know. That's fair. Yeah. I think one of the things we keep running up against is that we've definitely had very different experiences of being Asian American. It took me much longer to come to terms with it because of the different places we're from. <laughs> But yeah. And with the recent、um, concerning news about anti-Asian violence in the U.S., it really does make me rethink, you know, this whole thing about Asian American assimilation, really. But I don't want to be like presuming isomorphism between ethnicity and language, you know.、Um, but there's like this whole thing about having a core or a true self, you know, like underneath this fake white English that I've grown up in and、uh, consciously tried to make as white as possible. Underneath this, there's Mandarin, there's Taiwanese. In my case, you know, underneath that, there's also Hakka. Because that's what my mom actually is. Like, even if she can't speak it. So, like, if you want to get into this quest, that's probably what ought to be the language of my heart of hearts, or whatever. Like, you can tell I'm really not into this. But I don't mean to diminish the actual issue of language loss. 
or English or Mandarin hegemony, or the legacy of discriminatory practices. Taiwanese takes as much time and investment as it does to master English or any other language. And we should be willing to expend time and money on it. And I wish I wouldn't be so embarrassed about it, you know? Let's maybe push back against the assumption that language or accent can be straightforwardly mapped onto nationality or ethnicity or class or political orientation. Because often it can't. Like, we're all hybrids after all, and you can hear it in my accent, in our accents. And you know what? That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Welcome to McDonald's, to California, to Minnesota even, to Taiwan, to low back, open, mid, front, unrounded vowels. Welcome home. Hey, don't leave just yet. Stick around after the credits for words from our executive producers. This has been a Ghost Island Media production. This episode was produced, written, hosted by Alice Ye. Production coordination by Trevor Liu. Executive produced by Ghost Island Media. Special thanks to Catherine for participating in the interview and Future Ward for providing the recording room. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next season. Bye. Hey, it's Emily Waibu here. Welcome to the very last episode of the second season of In Training. This wraps our second batch of interns at Ghost Island Media. The third batch of interns had started last week, and we are really looking forward to how they will continue their peers' work. Um, congratulations to Alice. I really, really loved this episode. I thought it sounded so fresh and so much fun. The rhythm and the editing and the tempo in this episode was something that was very surprising to us because up until now, Alice had been working with us on our current affairs podcast. Uh, so to see this different side of her has been very delightful. There were a couple things she didn't hear that really surprised us um, that we usually advise people against. Number one, we usually advise against using too many tracks of music and sound effects. But somehow, this one actually works. <laughs> um, it's so full of sound effects, especially in the first half, but instead of being unfocused or being distracting like it could be, but actually really added to her storytelling and really brought out the frenziness of the topic she's talking about. Secondly, usually when somebody wants to make a very highly academic episode, we get a little bit scared because it has the potential of being really dry. Um, but instead, even though here Alice did use some jargons and a lot of academic terms, but because of the way she presented it in this really young and fresh voice and the way she made her and her friend Catherine seem very likable in the entire episode, we stayed with them. We laughed with them. We made fun of each other with them and went down this discovery with them. And so it didn't matter that sometimes we did not understand a couple of jargons or a couple of academic terms that they used. Uh, so that was quite cool. Uh, and make me think of how better to present our other materials in the future. Congratulations to everybody who has participated in this season and the last. 
And until next time, see ya.